Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. As I said, we are continuing this morning in what, in what has become kind of an impromptu series on the superiority of the written Word of God. And uh, one of the things that we've mentioned through the course of this is that we recognize that the gifts of the Spirit, as we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are still in operation today, that God is not silent. He still speaks to believers. He still speaks through believers. It amazes me that that, that simple statement is such a contentious, a contentious one in our world today, when somebody will just even mention, well, I felt God told me this, or uh, I'm just trying to do what God told me to do. And then you'll see a, uh, maybe not a national news headline, but a secular news headline, so-and-so says, Congressman so-and-so says, God talks to me. Like this is the most ridiculous thing in the world, and it's not, right? God speaks to us, God speaks through us. Um, one of the pertinent questions, though, once we grant the legitimacy of prophetic utterances in general is what? How do I know if what a prophet is speaking, is true. And we've looked at the answers to that question and others, so I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages if you missed them. But last week, uh, as I was beginning to wrap up, I said this. If you want to be in a position to hear from God through prophecy, or for that matter, if you want to be used to prophesy, you must approach the written word of God humbly and seriously. Now, I referred to this last week as a kind of preview, so let's look at it together this morning. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 3. We have the creation account, and we have God's pronouncing all of creation uh, as good, and the creation of man as very good, and their uh, brief, we actually don't have a timeline of how long they lived in this uh, paradise on earth called Eden, but uh, it doesn't take up very much space in the Bible because in chapter 3 we read this, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 3, 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now look at what she saw. I'm not going to make a, I'm not going to chase this rabbit all the way down the trail, but I always think of this when it says she, will, uh, she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and, uh, and desirable to make one wise. It always takes me to 1 John chapter 2, where it says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do you see the connection there, the parallels? 
She saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the lustful pride of life. But the main thing for our purposes today is verse 1 and verse 4. Verse 1 is where the enemy tries to stir up doubt about what God has said. He had put them in the garden and given them everything, and the only don't was don't eat of this particular tree, because the day you eat that tree, you die. Dying, it says, you shall die. Uh, so he, this is how there's a pattern here, and this is what I mentioned in closing last week, that when the devil attacks us, when our enemy attacks us, when he wants to steal the word from us, the first place he starts is, has God really said this? Do you have a word from the Lord? Do you know what God has said? <clears throat> and this is absolutely applicable today. Even with abundant access to the word of God, we're surrounded by at least two different concerns regarding what God has said. One of them we have discussed. There are many voices, and it seems like more in the last couple of years, that say, God told me this, and God told me to tell you this. And when two or more are gathered... <laughs> Uh, or allied by virtue of a common acquaintance or a common cause, they become bolder and say things like I have heard and many of you have heard, listen to the voice of God's prophets. We are all saying the same thing. Well, as we looked at last week, all the prophets were saying the same thing to King Ahab in the presence of King Jehoshaphat, right? Except for one, Micaiah. And he was the only one that had the word of God. We can also look at... Uh, uh, in the days of Jeremiah, the prophets told him the same thing. Why don't you just say what everybody else is saying? Spare yourself all this agony, all this rejection. And Jeremiah says, I can only say what God told me. What's interesting is when Jeremiah and all the other prophets who were warning Israel of impending doom, they were simply confirming the prophetic warning that Moses gave them clear back in Deuteronomy. It was written. You can go back and look at it. I love the book of Deuteronomy. I know a lot of you do too. But he says very, very clearly, if you do this, forget the Lord your God, worship idols, then this will happen to you. You'll be carried into captivity. And this is all that Jeremiah and these other prophets were saying. They had the word of God. They were speaking a rhema word. They were speaking a word that God gave them, but it was confirmation of what he had already revealed in the law. Now, uh, anyway, we talked about that danger. We didn't talk about it exhaustively, but we've talked about it at length. So again, you can go back, listen to some of those messages. But there's another application, another danger, when it comes to the question of hath God said. And it comes in the form of simple ignorance. I'm going to give you a more or less harmless example. Uh, many of you know this. There are instructions in the Bible. This is back in uh, well, Leviticus and Numbers uh, where God is giving them, and even in Exodus where he's giving them the blueprint for the temple, for instance. He tells them, uh, not the temple, but for the tabernacle. And then it would become the temple. And uh, we know, and this is a whole message in itself, that God didn't say, hey, go throw up a tent, build a building, do something, carve out a place to worship me. He told them exactly how to build it, right? Gave them the dimensions, the materials, the furniture, and even the uniform. And the priest uh, wore a 
robe that at the bottom, around the hem of it, was what? Anybody remember? There was a pomegranate and a bell. Pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell. And the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies one day a year to sprinkle blood uh, on the ark, perform his once yearly duties. This is the only time that anybody could go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies and only on this one day. And God was very particular about how things got done behind that veil. And if you did them wrong, you ran the risk of being struck down. But he's the only one that can go back there. So if the priest made a mistake and died, nobody could go get him. So what did they do? Anybody know? Tied a rope around his ankle. And so they'd listen for these bells. And when the bells stopped jingling, then they'd, maybe they'd listen for a thump. Nobody could go get the priest. Nobody else could go back there. So they'd pull him out by the rope. Now, I just gave you the outline. Let's look at it in the Bible. Except we can't because it's not in there. Did you know that? Because I didn't for years. I heard that preached many times. And I believed it for a long time. But it's not in the Bible. The rope thing. The bells and the pomegranates is there. It's true that only one guy could go behind the veil. But there's no biblical evidence that they ever tied a rope around this guy's ankle and had to drag him out under the curtain. Now, was my soul in mortal danger because I believed that for years? No. Is it possible that that is a true story, that they actually did that, at least after a time? It's possible. There are probably some Jewish traditions that say it is so. But I heard it so many times and believed it for so long that I could have sworn to you that I read it in the Bible. So the danger comes in hearing things presented as Scripture that are not, or more often, Scripture that is taken out of context. And this is why I like reading longer passages rather than the one verse I'm, I'm talking about. I like to see these things in context. And I think certainly there are isolated statements in the Bible that can only be understood properly within the larger framework of Scripture, the whole counsel of Scripture. This becomes very important to us, for instance, when we're talking about the gifts, when we're talking about the life of faith. Is speaking in tongues for today... Man, Paul writes pretty extensively about the value of praying in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It would be nice to know if that were for today or if that's something that has passed already. Is healing for today? Or is that something that was reserved for Jesus as a sign of his Messiahship? Well, we know it wasn't that because the apostles did miracles. Okay, it was for the apostles. Oh, it was for the apostolic age. Oh, healing and all of the other signs, all of the other gifts, were only until we had the Bible canonized in between two covers. What does the Bible actually say? Because if we know what the Bible says, if we really know it, some of those questions go away in a hurry. Because there's a certain logic to the idea that, well, we don't need the gifts now. We have the whole Bible. But where does it say in the Bible? What does it say about when the gifts pass? 
tells us the short answer is in 1 Corinthians 13. When we're face-to-face with Jesus, we won't need words of knowledge and prophecy anymore. Tongues will pass away. Until then, we need all the gifts. Amen. So, there's one other line of attack, though. So, this is all addressing the whole, what has God said? Has God really said this? We, the best way to know what God has said is to read what God has said. And read it often. Know it, not just read it, right? So, but here's the other line of attack. In verse 4 of Genesis chapter 3, the serpent essentially calls God a liar. Has God said, you shall not eat of the tree? Uh, Yeah, God has said. We can eat of all these other trees, but we can't eat of this one or we'll die. And what was Satan's response? What was the serpent's response at this point? You're not going to die. God just doesn't want you eating of that tree because... When you do, you'll become like him. He doesn't want you eating of the tree because your life's going to be better if you do. And he's withholding it. In other words, yeah, God said it, but he's not going to do what he said. This is the lie that Adam and Eve fell for. Yeah, Adam and Eve, remember? Eve took it and gave it to her husband with her. So has God said That question cast doubt on what was spoken. The you shall not die cast dispersions on God's character. And this directly addresses the issue of faith. Our faith is absolutely rooted in what God has said and in the trustworthy nature of God himself. This is my favorite example. And this is not a new sermon, at least not this part. Uh, some of you, if you pay close attention, take good notes. Uh, this is always funny to me. And at least two or three times a year I say, bear with me if you remember this from before. But more often, here's what happens. I preach a message that I know I've preached three times in the last seven or eight years. And somebody will come and say, that was the best thing I've ever heard you say. Oh, really? Did you think that the first three times I said it or the first five times I said it? And that's not a, And that I'm not insulting anybody with that. I've been that guy. This is, it's one of those deals where God just makes something come alive to you. How many of you have read a passage of the Bible for the 100th time or so, and suddenly a light goes on? Ah! Am I really the only one? Well, we don't read our Bibles. I know you read your Bibles, but you see things. Or you hear a teaching for the 10th time, and suddenly it clicks. So I I'm, I'm really need to stop apologizing for saying something again and again and again, because things need to be said again and again. Having said that, for the 10th time since 2014, I will read from, no, it's not, but I don't know how close it is. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1 to give some good context here. This is where Paul begins to speak about what we call the hall of faith, these examples, these great uh, examples of uh, men and women of God who did great things because of their faith. But it says here in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he, being dead, still speaks. 
By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely, divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance, out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now here's the verse I really want you to see. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many of the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Sarah, of course, was Abraham's wife. Abraham and Sarah were called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, into the land that God would show them. He didn't even show it to him on a map. He just said, get up and go. Gave him a direction. He says, I'll show you the land when you get there. And when you get there, I'm going to show you that it's yours. I'm going to tell you how big it is. And you are going to have a family that is going to inhabit all of that land. Your descendants will be innumerable. They had this promise. And they were already kind of old. And then 20 years go by or so. And now they're old, old. The Bible acknowledges that both of them were biologically past the age of childbearing. And God reiterates, you will have a son, and your descendants are going to be innumerable. And you can go back in Genesis and read this account because there's some pretty funny moments of this. You know, Abraham tries to take things into his own hand and impregnates the servant girl saying, well, you know, it'll be kind of like our son, but at least it's mine. And God says, no, you and Sarah are going to bear a son. And Sarah overhears it and laughs. It's like, an old lady like me? This can't happen. She laughs. Abraham got desperate and said, oh, just let Ishmael live before you. He's already here. No, you will conceive, you will bear a child with Sarah. He's the child of promise. And how do you receive a promise when you're in that situation? Sarah knew the promise. She heard the promise. You shall bear a son. And if God said it, why does it matter how much we believe it? Because God is God, right? God said it. He's going to do it. He, he's, he can do whatever he wants. Snap his fingers, and it's so. Did Sarah have anything to do with that promise coming to pass? What does Scripture say? It says she did, and Abraham too. According to verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 1, she received the strength or the ability, even though she knew it was physically impossible, biologically impossible. And why was she able to receive the ability to do that? Because 
she judged him faithful who had promised. Do you see the difference there? When she heard the promise, her judgment of the promise is impossible. This promise doesn't make sense, but it's God who said it. So I have to receive it. I know some things about God. And as ridiculous as this promise sounds, since this promise came from God, I believe it. Again, same with Abraham himself. Look at Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, I'm in Romans 4. I'm going to give you time to get there. I want to hear those pages turn it. Romans 4, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's pointing out here, Paul is, by the way, that, yeah, there is a difference between those who are Jewish by blood, the, the physical descendants of Abraham, but that the promises of God are more pointedly and more importantly given to those who share Abraham's faith, not his physical bloodline. And he did. He quoted, he's going to be a father of many nations. In the presence of him who he believed, or whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. This is the important part. Verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Oh, man, this is so important and so good, but one, uh, one thing I need to do here is draw your attention to something that's probably a bad translation. I always do that when I read this passage, much as I love this passage, there in the KJV where it says, not becoming a weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. Most modern translations, and I'm talking scholarly translations, not just paraphrases, say this. Well, let me just read it out of the New American Standard Bible, which is an excellent, excellent word-for-word -word translation of the Greek. It says this in, in verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And don't get uptight about this because you think, oh, wow, how can we trust the Bible? I mean, these are two opposite statements. One clearly says he did not consider his own body. The other clearly said he did. But the message, and this is why context is important, the outcome, no matter where you're reading, Old King James, New King James, New American Standard, it's the same message. What's the central message? The central message is he knew he was 100 years old. He knew that he and Sarah were both past the age of childbearing, and yet they believed the promise because of who God is. The problem is some will take that and build a whole theology on, here's what faith is. Faith is not considering your circumstances. 
If you consider your circumstances, you are in doubt. You are in fear. You are not in faith. We need to be like Abraham and consider not the circumstances. But Abraham did consider the circumstances. It's kind of, it would be kind of like David going up against Goliath and saying, that's not a giant. He's no different from any man. He was. Goliath was clearly different from every man. But David saw him compared to God not compared to everybody else. He's looking at the same circumstance and looking at it. He knew he had a giant to kill. And yes, this giant was bigger than everybody else, but he was much, much smaller than God. Abraham's looking at the circumstances. He just doesn't see them as something that makes it impossible because he's looking at his circumstances, even his old good-as-dead body, compared to the power and trustworthiness of the Word of God. Yes, this is true. Yes, this is true. And yes, this is true. But God said this, and I will believe it. Listen, you are not in faith just because you know the promise. You are not in faith just because you can quote the promise. And you are not in fear just because you consider the circumstances. This is what I heard Doug Jones call many, many years ago the threshold of faith. Look, you know your circumstances. You know your struggle. And you really can't avoid considering them just a little bit anyway. But you also know the promise of God. Now, the promise of God or the direction of God is not always wildly opposed to your circumstances. Sometimes God speaks in the middle of circumstances that are pointing us a particular way. I'll give one. I don't know if this is a perfect example. It's probably not, but I think it was a decent one for my life. Uh, back in 93, I was invited to go to Canaan land and work for Brother Matt Gober. It was not something I would have ever chosen to do. It was completely against my gifts, my experiences, my desires, even geographically. I didn't want to live in the deep south. It's not my cup of tea. But another issue was they were offering me the princely sum of $400 a month to do this job. And, and room and board, okay? And uh, once I went down, actually, before that, I just sort of blew it off. But I was at a point in my life where God was starting to stir something in me. This is after Rama. And I was happy working where I was working, volunteering where I was volunteering. But God stirred up in me what I have since termed a divine dissatisfaction. There was nothing I could put my finger on other than, again, this stirring of God's getting ready to do something else. And then this is what, this, I, I, the guy just called me. A friend of a friend who worked there. And I was like, I don't think it's for me, but I'll pray about it. And I did. Prayed about it. And as I'm praying, I'm looking for reasons to say no. And I'll be honest. One of the reasons I wanted to say no was, that's not much money. And then, without going into the details behind it, I discover, literally, through the mail, that I was the beneficiary of somebody's life insurance policy. I didn't know this policy existed. And it wasn't huge. But it was enough to take some of the load off of going somewhere for at least a year where I essentially wouldn't be making anything at just the right time. Okay, so that circumstance 
Could have been, oh my goodness, uh, if you go, then you are going to have to sell every single thing you have. You are going to have to still step out in faith because of this, because of that. All this, this circumstance actually made it, I would have still had to obey. If God made it clear, I want you to go, even if nothing else made sense, I still had to obey. But God brought something into my life that made it make more sense. But sometimes the circumstances are going to be opposed, right? So you know the promise, and you consider the circumstances, and if those circumstances, for instance, Abraham and Sarah, my body is too old to reproduce. If those circumstances are in clear opposition to the promise, what was the promise? You will have a son and eventually innumerable descendants. Then we have a choice to make. And if we remain loyal to the circumstances, love to have a son, Lord, but I know it's not going to happen. I'm too old. Then I'm in doubt. Then I won't receive the promise. If, despite the clear circumstances to the contrary, I remain loyal to the promise, then I have stepped over the threshold of faith into God's blessings. When I look at the circumstances and everything about them says this can't happen, logically impossible, biologically impossible, physically impossible, but God is the one who said it. I have to believe it. Then I have stepped over the threshold of faith into victory and blessings. And what is going to get us over that threshold? That's the big question. If, if that's the key to stepping over that threshold of doubt into faith, what does the Bible say? The circumstances say one thing, the promise says another. Now it's time to look at who made the promise. Your estimation of God's character, your knowledge of who God is, is what's going to cause you to either remain trapped in your circumstances or cause you to cross over into victory and receive the promise. This opens up a whole nother can of worms, though. How do we know God's character? How do we know God? This is at the heart of so many of the moral arguments of our day that have turned into political arguments. The God I know would never stop right there. Who is the God you know, and how do you know him? The God I know would never call it a sin just to love somebody that's different from the people you think you should love. The God I know would essentially never condemn anybody for anything. People are the way God made them. He's not going to condemn them for that. God, the God I know would never send anyone to hell. He loves us and accepts us all, all people, and anything, any religion, any church or message that says anything but that is hatred and evil. Or this, I know what God is like because, you know, certain things just resonate with me. God is in every religion that fosters peace. God is in the mountains, in the trees. Or worse, God is in cancer and God is in blindness if we would just look for him there. Is there a kernel of truth? Could you say, for instance, study any religion and you will find some truth in it? See, that's, that's a pretty safe bet. I haven't studied all religions, but I've, I know some claims of Islam. I know some claims of Hinduism, of Buddhism, of, of, and certainly of, of Judaism that are, that are true claims. 
what does the whole message say? Does that make it a true religion, a true belief system? Uh, is God in the trees and the mountains? Well, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent, according to the Bible, and God certainly spoke the trees and the mountains into existence. Can we, even facing a deadly disease or a physical trial, learn something about God? I have. Does that mean God is in cancer, blindness, back pain? No. He can be present with us as we walk through those things, but those things are clearly not of God, and that's a whole nother sermon that I just might preach next week. So if that sounds good to you, make reservations and come back. The question for us today is, what has God said about himself, about us, and about the world we inhabit? because he's said something about all of those things. Had a fascinating conversation years ago with somebody who came to faith in God essentially because reading the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they saw God knows more about me than I know about me. One of the most penetrating truths of the Bible is that the Bible, that God in his word gives the most accurate description of you and me and all mankind. That'll be part of next week's sermon. If God created us for himself, if we are supposed to glorify him and enjoy him forever, is it reasonable to imagine that he has left us with no way of knowing him? Are we really just supposed to be groping in the dark to find him and reach him? Of course not. He has revealed himself in his word. He ultimately reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who is knowable through the scriptures. That's another thing. People say, well, the Jesus I know. The only Jesus that is available for you to know is the Jesus of the Gospels. Very, it's, it's one of those almost contradictions. Very few serious scholars, even atheist scholars, deny that Jesus existed. And you'd have to be an ignoramus when it comes to history uh, not to recognize the enormous impact Jesus has on history, continues to have on history. Now, they don't have to acknowledge that he is God or the Son of God or the Savior or anything like that. But the fact that even atheists, secular scholars and historians and philosophers all recognize that he existed, even though there is very little evidence outside the Bible that he did. I'm talking written evidence. The evidence of his existence is the impact he continues to have on people down through the ages. He's revealed himself in his word and in Jesus and we can encounter Jesus if we start with the scriptures. We have encounter and we come to know him more in prayer, in our experiences with him, and in our uh, corporate experience as his body, as his church. All of these things work together to cause us and allow us to know God. 
And no matter how sincere someone is about what they have experienced and what they've heard, we can and must, first of all, test or judge these things by the more sure word of prophecy, which is the written word of God. I'm not done yet, but praise and worship team, you could be making your way up here. There are some who, when they hear a statement like that, will say, and I've seen this and probably, this is not a kind of statement you really have to dig for, uh, but I've seen it a lot in the last year or two, and it's, I'm sure it's existed before. They would say, you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping the Bible. Has anybody heard that besides me? Wow, okay. We're just looking at different news stories, I guess, or conversations. But they say, you're, you're, God is alive. Jesus is alive. He's real. He's knowable. He is who we worship. The Spirit of Christ is who we get to know. We don't worship the Bible. And that's absolutely right. We do not worship the Bible. But my, oh my, don't we love the Bible? Don't we love that God loved us so much and loves us so much to give us the Bible? How else? Stand up with me. How else? If we didn't have the Bible, how else would we know that our deepest problem is that we are sinners? According to the Bible, all of us, cut off from the presence and goodness of God. Because of our sin nature, which we inherited from our first father and mother. How else would we know that God provided the only solution to that problem? How else would we know that Jesus Christ went to the cross to carry our sin in himself so that the judgment we deserved could be poured out on him? How else would we know that Jesus rose from the dead and offers us that same victory over the grave? Without the word of God, how else would we know that God has made a way for us to live in his loving and glorious presence forever? This is what the Jesus of the Bible promises, eternal life to all who what? Trust in him. Not a feeling, not ideas, but him and his word. He is the word made flesh. And the Spirit of God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, puts it this way, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it is the Bible, the precious revealed Word of God that tells us we need to be saved. Without the Word of God, we wouldn't know that. We might. There, I think there's an inherent knowing. But man, that inherent knowing can be so easily uh, taken off track and pointed in wrong directions if we don't have something concrete to anchor it to. And the Bible is such a proven winner. It is a proven source of truth if we read it right, if we read it in context, if we're not cynical about it, if we don't believe everything everybody says about the Bible. I don't want to get off track because I'm, I'm doing an altar call, but it just infuriates me to hear and read so many things. Well, the Bible says this, and God said this. Where? 
I'm a man of God. I love the Bible. I read the Bible. I just told you something untrue that I believed for years, if not decades. Thank God. It was a detail. But these are perilous times. And there'll be lying prophets, lying signs and wonders, all sorts of things clamoring for our attention with the end game of what? Of deceiving, if possible, even the elect. It's not always going to be easy to sort this stuff out, but it's going to be impossible if we don't have his word hidden in our hearts. Thank God. And this isn't a, oh, God's making me study more. It's like, no, praise God, he gave us his word. We need to be passionate about it. We need to be sharing it, doing what we can to distribute it to others. And meanwhile, being confident in what? Our Bible memory, our recitation of the promises, No, in our knowledge of the God who spoke these things. Oh, praise God, even in these tough times. What? The economy's going down the toilet, and God says, I'm going to supply all your need according to my riches and glory. Doesn't look like I can make it. On paper, I'm broke. But God said this. Who are you going to go with? The diagnosis from the doctor is this, and this is concrete, this is science. Here's the blood evidence. But God said this, I am the Lord who heals you. There are some stark choices we have to make. What are we going to remain loyal to? Our circumstances, the evidence, or the promise of God? Are we going to determine to know God well enough that when we hear his promise, we simply rejoice and say, yes, I already know that guy. He's kept every other promise he made. He's going to keep this one too. It's all good news. Except those promises are for who? We just read about this. Those of the faith of Abraham. It's not for the world. What's the world composed of? Those who have not believed in Christ, those who have not accepted him, acknowledged him, confessed him as Lord with their mouth, and believed in their heart, God raised him from the dead. Those are of the world. Just like we all once were. And I don't know what you know about Calvinism, but one thing you can know is that I'm not one. And I don't believe that division between those who are saved and those who are unsaved, those who will believe and those who haven't believed, etc. This is not all up to God. Just like Sarah received that ability, she received that child, not just because God said so, but because she counted him faithful who had promised. God has promised that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God to raise from the dead, you'll be saved. But it's a decision you have to make. It's not what you were raised in. It's not a ceremony you go through. It's an acknowledgement. Uh, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I guess that includes me. I don't want to fall short of the glory of God. I want to be in the glory of God. So, Jesus, you're in charge now. That's what lordship means. It's not just confessing Jesus' name. It's confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe God raised you from the dead. Be risen in my heart. Raise me from the dead. Make me a new person. I'm going to pray a prayer here. And then we're going to sing a song, right? We have a song? We have a closing song? I'm going to pray a prayer. Uh, And as soon as I'm done praying, as soon as I say amen, they start singing. If you want to make that decision today, I want to pray with you today. I would encourage you just to come up here. Uh, I'm not going to wave my hands around the place. I'm not going to throw you on the ground. I might put my hand on your shoulder. I might take your hand and pray a prayer that might take 30 seconds. But if it comes from your heart, you will be saved. If you haven't made that decision, I urge you to make it today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your promises, your sure 
great, precious promises. And thank you for revealing yourself as a God who loves us, as a God who will keep his promises, as a God who has given us the capacity to know you and believe you. Thank you for your demonstrated, trustworthy character. All the great promises you've made us, made to us as believers, but also the promise you made to the world that if we will acknowledge our need for you and acknowledge that Jesus has met that need, you will save us. You will give us a new heart, a new life, and that you will make a home, a forever home for us in your presence in eternity. It's my prayer, Lord, and I believe it's the prayer of every Christian, every believer, every son and daughter of God in the sound of my voice, that if there is anyone in the sound of my voice who has not made that decision, who has not come to know you, that you would pierce their heart as only you can, that you would cause them to recognize their desperate need for salvation and grant them the humility, the wisdom, and the boldness to receive that gift today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.